Ladies and gentlemen, welcome or welcome back to the JKWD podcast. We are so happy you're here. <laughs> happy, one happy, day, happy. One day you're going to go through an intro and I'm not going to giggle. That's 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 my dream here. <laughs> uh, maybe it's not. <laughs> and that'll be a 45-minute intro because I will spend that time trying to get you to giggle. Uh, finally, finally, I will give up at some point. Got it. Now, Probably won't uh, let it go on 45 minutes. Now I know what the outer limits are. <laughs> Besides an old show. Uh, yeah. Kevin, how you doing, man? I am doing excellent, Mr. Shear. How you doing? I'm, I'm doing wonderful. Um, we, uh, we just, well, the rest of the world has been having some kind of heat wave. Yeah. It's been like 85, 90 degrees, nice breezes. It's been perfect here. Uh, I What's perfect in your world? Just, just well, I mean, the weather here has been perfect, oh. and then the uh, well, yeah, everything else is is doing pretty good. We're actually recording this um on my fifth anniversary. Uh, hey, congratulations! Happy anniversary! You. And Kelvin, you took some fantastic photos of that wedding. I did. Uh, if you head over to the Custom Photogenics Facebook page, I think you can probably still find the gallery if you uh, search for Josh and Jen. Wedding. I may have to put up a new link that says "as mentioned on JKWD." JKWD podcast. I might have to there do you that. Go. I would do that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that we had a, you know, we, we did a small private ceremony at a synagogue in Massachusetts, but then, you know, the, the wedding you came to and that today is the anniversary of, uh, it was a big, you know, just a friends and family gathering that, that our friends really drove and, you know, you, know, you handled photos, and our friend Frank was the officiant, and our friend Jeff was the DJ, and my wife's cousin owned the restaurant where where we got married, and everything was a whole lot of fun. It was, and um, and the and the officiant tried to auction me off. <laughs> 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 Which, well, don't don't feel I, I, bad. Auction's the bad word. I, that's not what I meant. <laughs> oh no actually he did try to auction me <laughs> well don't don't feel bad he actually wore a shirt that said i love you josh don't please don't marry her yes he did <laughs> that should be front and center on something that was that was totally unexpected i have got to say um you didn't even expect it nope nope no, we did not no clue what that guy was gonna do he was such a nut Nope. We, we only told him to run run anything by us if he wasn't sure, uh, and <clears throat> and he did. He he wanted to change our uh, our recession music, and we said no. Oh, okay. Uh, but that was the only no he got. Yeah. Well, it was the only thing he asked about. Oh, well, there you go. Uh, yeah, that was a uh, that was fun. So we got a pretty cool episode today. Uh, we had on Dr. Dana Lee Bagley, who's a registered clinical psychologist. She got her master's and PhD in clinical psychology with an emphasis in health psychology from the University of British Columbia. She holds an assistant professor appointment in the Department of Family Medicine and Cross Appointments at the Department of Surgery and the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience at Dalhousie University and an adjunct professor appointment in the Department 
of Industrial and Organizational Psychology at St. Mary's University. She lives in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and has a new book out called Healthy Habits Suck. I'm pretty sure we can use the word suck and not get any. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking. <clears throat> and I'm sure that I messed up the pronunciation of Dalhousie University, but that's what I get for reading something aloud without screening it first and going to YouTube for well, a pronunciation. Okay. There's going to be a link. They can decide how to pronounce it when they go look at it. That's right. <clears throat> Y'all can correct me over email and see if I can. That's right. See if you can get it through my thick head. Oh, I thought um, she was going to say, see if you care. But I guess that's, <laughs> you did better than I thought you were going to. Well, um, she was, she was yeah. a fun, fun conversationalist. And did you notice that when he, every, whenever we asked a question, there were like no pauses. She just like just absorbed that and like, bam, information. Yeah. And I think we, uh, I think we didn't ask her, um, meaningless questions like we didn't just try to get her to talk a little bit about the book like we got her to talk about changing habits and she gave some examples and um you know we got to talk about chasing tigers and grilling babies and um <laughs> yeah, no frivolous questions at all in there <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you're a sick man. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, it was fun. It was fun. It was. Well, and, you know, speaking of healthy habits, uh-huh. healthy habit you can get into is bone broth. Mm -hmm. Help you with some, you know, if you're getting on your keto diet, on your paleo diet, uh, if you're doing some intermittent fasting, Kettle and fire bone broth will help you out. In fact, they have some new keto soups now, too. They're pushing a mushroom bisque. Um, sounds delicious. I'm gonna have to, uh, I'm gonna have to go, you know, try that, aren't you? Yeah, try, try some of the stuff that they're that they said, hey, this is new. Like, yeah, I guess I gotta try that, don't I? There you go. Well, anyway, they will give you 10% off with code better humanhood uh that's at kettle kettle apparently we've been at this so long that my tongue has stopped working go to kettle fill up your box with delicious soups and bone broths use code better humanhood at checkout for 10 percent off and on the other side of the music you'll hear us with dr dana lee bagley See you in a minute. <laughs> Welcome to the Josh and Kelvin World Domination Podcast, where we talk about better humanhood and teach you how to dominate your world. You ready? Go. So, thanks for being here. Um, everybody else has the same Google I do. So, uh, you know, we'll read your bio and everything, but do you want to uh, introduce uh, you in your own words and, and let us know your mission and, and why that's your mission? Okay. 
So, uh, so I'm uh, Dr. Dana Lee Bagley. I'm a clinical health psychologist. Um, my, so one of the things that's important to me in life is about reducing human suffering. And that um, is, uh, drives a lot of the things that I do. In particular, I do that in a way by helping people be healthier um, and allowing them to do the things that matter to them in life when uh, health is like one of those things that you need in order to be able to do the things that matter to you. So that's how I help reduce human suffering. And um, so I've been working with people with chronic health conditions for a really long time. And this book came about um, also to try to reach people that I wouldn't normally get to encounter and to offer them some skills um, that are based on science that we know that works and also applying them in real life. We, we love application here. It's one of the uh, uh, reasons we started this and, and we, we always try to take away some actionable items at the end. Um, but can we start maybe with the, the title of the book is, is Healthy Habits Suck. Um, but can we start with um, defining what what habits are um, and how we can understand those and then maybe move into how we identify healthy ones? Yeah, so uh, in the book, it's pretty broad of what people define as healthy habits. I mean, I actually think most people know the things that they should be doing, right? So healthy habits include things like being physically active, eating fruits and vegetables, getting sleep, staying hydrated, not having too much um, alcohol, those kinds of things. They're generally principles that most people know. And so one of the things that I think this book actually does differently from other resources is it doesn't tell you what to do, it tells you how to do it. So it's really focused on how do you actually start engaging in these healthy habits in your day-to-day -day life and how do you stick with it? Because that's the other part, is the sticking with it is actually the really hard part. Yeah, it's super easy to get geared up for a new, for a new thing, and then after three, four days, exactly. The, the first time you hit a weekend, you're like, mm, I, "I was good this week. I can reward myself." <laughs> and then it's, and then it's gone. He knows Pretty me much. well. Doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, There's like you. I mean, you specialize in a lot of uh, emotion-based things. So, for the problem of people who. Uh, don't continue to eat healthy or, you know, go off binge. Is it, a, is it a, an emotional thing or what have you found is um, the biggest obstacle to. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think the biggest obstacle is actually the way our brain works. And so part of our brain is actually, you know, was uh, developed in what I call, you know, I refer to as the caveman brain. It's like the paleo mammalian brain was developed in caveman times. And this brain is really well suited to a caveman environment. And so in that environment, you know, the principles that were really um, appropriate to live by were to uh, seek pleasure, avoid pain, do the thing that takes the least amount of effort and to live for today. Now, those worked really well in that day and age because pain was usually associated with death. So that was a good thing to avoid. Um, we were getting the same amount of exercise that triathletes get nowadays. And so if you had a chance to rest, you definitely should rest. And our life expectancy was about 30. So doing things for right now was definitely more important. It was really all about survival. And those principles are really well adapted for survival. Um, the problem is that in our modern world, 
um, it's much different. And the things that we need to do to be healthy actually violate all of those principles, right? So in order to um, be healthy, you have to avoid pleasure. You shouldn't have that ice cream. You have to accept pain. You should go for a run. You have to do the thing that takes the most amount of effort. You should take the stairs and not the elevator. And you should live for the future. Don't you know that might kill you in 20 years? And so healthy habits in and of themselves violate the principles of how our brains are hardwired. And so that to me is actually the biggest obstacle is understanding that our brain is not hardwired for healthy habits. It's hardwired for this um, caveman existence, um, which we don't live in anymore. And so the other part of our brain that we have is, you know, our cortex, the prefrontal lobe is the part of our brain where we control behavior. So initiating behavior, stopping behavior, delaying gratification, that part of our brain can overcome other parts of our brains. And so we can do things even though our caveman brain doesn't want us to. But our frontal lobe requires us to have deliberate, specific effort, right? It doesn't happen automatically. Your caveman brain shows up automatically, right? So when you put your hand on a hot stove, you'll pull your hand away before you actually consciously register pain. So the instinctive response to take your hand away um, happens without conscious awareness. You haven't even felt pain before your hand moves. And so again, very helpful for survival. Those are the same instinctive responses that show up when you want to have donuts, when you want to lie on the couch, right? When you don't feel like exercising, it's like the same part of your brain. And so I think it's really important for us to recognize um, that this is how our brains work because then we can be better able to actually um, make it work to our advantage. Hmm. So that's why I don't put my hand on that hot stove again. Um, oh, that's a five-year-old experience. We'll talk about that one day. <clears throat> but uh, <laughs> all right, so so that's that's the the wired part. So how? I mean, I've heard of you know neuroscience has explained a lot to us, <clears throat> but as far as overcoming those things, and, and unfortunately. Thousand writers got a thousand different takes on this. So you're working specifically with, uh, I guess, food-based issues right now, nutrition-based yes. issues. Yeah. So that I mean, the intervention that I make use of is called acceptance and commitment therapy, and that's a type of cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, which is well established in the literature to help with a variety of different problems. So um, acceptance and commitment therapy has been used to address things like depression anxiety, um, obsessive compulsive disorder, psychosis, and also things like weight management and smoking cessation and um, exercise. So the, that's the theory that we use um, to uh, that orients everything in the book about what we're working on. So we're using that part of science to help us make use of, you know, our advanced brain to overcome some of our instinctive responses from our caveman brain. And specifically, we're using that to try and pe get people to do healthier habits. How do we, um, or how do you, you and, and science in general, help people pick um, which, which healthy habits they can start with and which um, bad habits uh, they can start getting rid of? Is Really, it's a matter of replacing habits, right? It's not... Right. Yep. So um, in the book, 
um, I suggest that people pick a healthy habit they want to do. So sometimes people have one in mind, like they want to start doing the keto diet. Sometimes they have ones that their healthcare providers had told them. So their doctor has said, you need to stop smoking or you need to start exercising. Most people have a range of things they know they should be doing. I know I should be having more green vegetables. I know I shouldn't, you know, have um, 12 drinks on the weekend every night. So most people have a good sense of, of what it is. And part of, um, you know, what to initiate is something that's meaningful and purposeful to you. So not just something that, you know, you feel like you should do, but something that you actually feel ready to do that kind of bothers you that you're not doing. Um, and so we encourage people to pick their own behavior to work through the book. And so it's sort of like structured, like you can read one chapter a week and be practicing the skills to try and get this one behavior to be more consistent in your life. Uh, we In the book, there's a number of strategies about how to make that happen, to be more likely to make that happen. So for example, one of the, the things I talk about in the book is a 90% goal. So that means you should be 90% sure that you can achieve that goal. Um, and if you're not, then you want to make it something smaller or um, less frequent, some way that you feel 90% sure that you can do it. And in that way, you're more likely to stick with it because when we feel like we're succeeding at something, we want to keep going. If we feel like we're failing at something, it's just a normal human response to stop trying. And so by picking something you're likely to be successful at, then you're going to want to keep doing it, right? So if you set the goal to go for a walk three times a week and you go twice, have you succeeded or failed? Well, your goal was three and you only went twice, so now you failed. If you set the goal to go once a week and you go twice, have you succeeded or failed? Well, now you've succeeded, right? And when we feel like we're succeeding, we want to keep going. So there's other kind of tricks in the book um, about those kinds of things that are actually based on science, right? That 90% goal is exactly the opposite of what people usually do. And what you just described is I'm going to change my whole life Monday morning, and I'm going to change everything that I'm going to eat, and I'm never going to eat uh, anything white anymore. I'm not going to eat any carbs anymore, right? And people last a couple days, if they're lucky, a week, right? And then they stop, and they stop it all together, right? So now they're not doing any healthy habits at all. So another principle that, we talk, that I talk about in the book is about the do instead goal, right? So many people pick a don't do goal. So I'm going to stop drinking pop, or I'm going to not eat chips at the end of the night. Um, and the problem with this is that this creates an effect, which in science is called the thought suppression effect, but I like to refer to as the pink elephant effect. So for example, if I tell you not to think about pink elephants, so don't imagine pink elephants, mm -hmm. don't think about pink elephants, what's likely to happen? It's the yeah. only thing you think about. Yeah. Yes, sorry, you're thinking about pink elephants. And I'm kind of guessing, you know, that this wasn't a hot topic before I said that. You know, I don't think it's like trending on Twitter, pink elephants, right? <laughs> but as soon as I tell you not to think about it, now you're, that's what you're thinking about. And you're going to think about pink elephants now way more than you did before I told you not to. Um, and this is a well-established phenomenon in psychology called the thought suppression effect, that the more you try to not think about something, the more you think about it. So we create pink elephants for ourselves all the time by setting goals that are don't do goals, right? Don't eat chocolate, don't have pop, don't eat chips late at night. Those are all pink elephants. And now you're thinking about chips and chocolate and pop way more than before you set that goal. So to get around that, we talk about the do instead goal. So what are you going to do instead of pop? What are you going to do instead of chips, right? And by thinking about adding things to your life instead of taking things away. So maybe you set the goal to have 
you know, a bowl of vegetables before you have your bowl of chips at night. Or maybe you um, set the goal to drink a big glass of water before you have your pop. And in that way, by adding healthy things, it eventually kind of crowds out the unhealthy things, but doesn't have the same sense of like deprivation that we often feel when we're on a diet, quote unquote. I like that. So what do I need? What do I need to eat before I have that half <clears throat> that half gallon of Perry's Panapaws ice cream, Josh? I, yeah. So I maybe have some fruit and vegetables before you do, right? Have, yeah, maybe I'll try that because I'll yeah. tell you what, well, that box goes quick. <laughs> yeah. And even if you have a big glass of water before you eat something, mm -hmm. the water helps fill you up um, and you're less likely, you know, to eat as much. Awesome. I like that. Okay. So this is a sort of kind of a personal question. I, I frame it here because if you don't like it, we can take it out. But um, I mean, you're helping people overcome these issues. Have you in your life uh, had an issue that you had to overcome that has helped to prompt you um, into this field? Yeah. So um, in fact, I describe it in the book about um, what happened for me was that I got um, I got separated and eventually divorced. And as through that process, um, I put on 40 pounds and um, I started doing the things that I typically had done other times in my life to lose weight and nothing happened. So I was exercising six days a week, training for 10K races, watching my diet and not losing a single pound and not even losing like body fat percentage, like nothing was happening. And it was a real wake up experience for me because a lot of my patients had described this, that they actually were doing healthy things, but it wasn't impacting the scale. And so I also sort of had to figure out like, how am I going to keep doing these behaviors, which I know are healthy for me when it's not impacting the scale whatsoever? How am I going to keep this up? Um, and so I realized these were all the same skills that I've been talking to patients to use for a long time. And so I started using them myself. And that's really what sort of prompted um, the book was that I was using them myself. I had been using them with patients for a long time. Um, and so to help other people kind of keep going with these healthy habits, even if it's not doing things like losing weight. Cool. Uh, you you mentioned a little bit ago um, one particular behavior that um, uh, smoking and like I have a lot of people around me who who deal with this. Now, this isn't one of those things that you can. I, I mean, I don't know what the incremental success looks like, right? Because the idea is to quit, right? So so zero cigarettes is the number that you're shooting for and one is a failure of zero. So, um, like what's the, um, like, like what's the, I don't want to call it a low bar, but I mean, it's kind of what we're going, that's the, that's the walk one time, uh, rather than setting the goal for three times. What's the, what's the low bar on, on something like smoking? The, yeah. the, the goal is to get to zero. Right. So actually, the first thing that you would do if you're aiming for smoking cessation or to stop smoking is that you continue to smoke the exact same number of cigarettes, but you do it in different ways. So people who smoke um, are both often physiologically addicted to the nicotine, but also psychologically addicted to the habit. So people tend to smoke in very regular ways, right? So they have their favorite brand. They have their morning coffee with a cigarette. They have it, you know, on their drive to work. They have this very regular routine of when they use cigarettes. 
And so that also prompts, um, you know, a reaction in your body that now your body is craving cigarettes at that time of day because it's used to getting them at that time of day. So the first step um, to quit smoking is actually to try to break those associations. And so the goal is actually smoke the exact same number of cigarettes, but do it in different ways. So smoke in different locations, smoke it with the wrong hand, use a different brand of cigarettes, smoke it more slowly or faster than you normally do uh, in different locations, right? Um, if you normally smoke inside the house, then only smoke outside of the house, but have the same number of cigarettes that you normally do. And the, the purpose of that is to break all the associations that you have with um, the psychological part of the link between of smoking. And then once you've broken those links by doing the smoking behavior in a different way, then it becomes easier to cut down on the number of cigarettes. And you can also think about like, what are you going to do instead of, right? So if you normally have a cigarette in the morning with coffee, are you going to do something different? I mean, smoking actually serves the function of um, it's like a relaxation. People use it for relaxation. They use it for weight management, right? They feel calmer when they're doing it. So um, do you have other things you're going to do to relax? Do you have other things you're going to do to manage your weight, right? To think about those kinds of things that you could start adding to your life to compensate for what the smoking was giving you. Gotcha. I, I, I did. I used to smoke, I don't know, pack and a half a day, you know, between friends. And when I decided to quit, I quit like cold turkey. Worked great for months. And then I went to visit uh, a relative in another town and we went to bar happy hour and um, I had a drink. And then halfway through that process, I realized that I had a lit cigarette I was smoking and I didn't even remember going to get it. I mean, just, just that process was there. And, um, uh, it was, I, I didn't understand that because I got through all the, all the typical things that people talked about, you know, I'll say, you know, your first, t first day is going to be tough. And then you get past the first day, then you're good for a week and get past the first week. Man, you do that. If you get to three weeks, you're like really in it. And then you're like home free, but no, no. The drink in the bar, I don't know if it was ice clinking or whatever, and all of a sudden I'm smoking. Don't even know how I got there. Don't even yeah. remember lighting, pulling out. I didn't even have them with me, so I don't know where I got them. So that type of thing, what do you what do you call this? So now it's yeah. it's it's totally subconscious and Yeah, know. so part of that effect, I mean one is that we actually know, uh, I think that the average number of times people try to quit smoking before they actually permanently quit smoking is something like 14 times, wow. which means like starting and then, and then, you know, that they, they've stopped smoking cigarettes completely, but then they start up again. And so it's also to keep in mind that that's a really normal pattern, that it's often not your first attempt mm -hmm. uh, that results in permanently not smoking. Uh, so in part to be kind of kind to yourself when that happens, it's really normal. The other thing you're describing is something that I talk about in the book, actually, too, which is about being on automatic pilot, which is that sense of it, it just happens, right? I, I'm sure you've had the experience of driving somewhere and you're like, I don't know how I got there, right. but I did. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And that's, uh, that's that same process of automatic pilot. 
And when we're on automatic pilot, the problem is that we do old habits and we do things without conscious awareness, right? We just are, it just happens. And that's a common description. People will say, well, I got home from work and suddenly I was eating the ice cream. And you're like, well, what happened? They're like, I don't know. I just ended up on the couch eating ice cream, right? It's a really common experience. So the opposite of automatic pilot is something we call mindfulness, which is paying attention to the present moment on purpose. Um, and in a non-judgmental way. And so that's the skill to turn off automatic pilot so that you can be more aware of what's going on and make better decisions. And so there's a number of exercises that we do in the book to try to um, practice this skill of mindfulness. And it's a, a skill that you can get better at so that you're more aware of what's going on for you, right? The alcohol in that situation also decreases your awareness and increases your disinhibition, which means like, you know, you're more likely to do stuff without thinking about it because of the effects of alcohol. Um, and so sometimes that's actually about your awareness of whether you're um, going to start drinking, because maybe once you start drinking, it's kind of game over that you're going to end up smoking. And so it's actually the watching the drinking that is the key behavior you have to pay attention to. Um, a, a, an example of that is also people who want to stop eating in front of the television at night. Um, you know, by the end of the day, we've pretty much used up our willpower. So willpower, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like a muscle and you use it all day long. Um, we in psychology, it's called self control mm -hmm. instead of willpower. And basically, we use that all day long to do, you know, to get yourself to work or to not swear at your boss or to drive in traffic, like we use that muscle all day long. So by the end of the day, it's just worn out, it's tired. You can do things over time to increase your self control, right to build that muscle and make it stronger. Uh, but eventually it gives out. It, that's just the way it is. And so most people often have that experience of I was I did followed my diet really well all day long. And then I got home and it was just, you know, it was a disaster. Um, and it's because your willpower muscle has been used up. And so the skill there actually, um, rather than trying to um, stop eating when you're in front of the television, is actually to stop yourself from ending up in front of the television. That once you get in front of the television, the automatic responses just take over and you just find yourself eating more than you meant to. And so can you find a do instead goal instead of ending up in front of the television? Can you do something else? Can you go for a walk? I mean, going to bed is a really great skill. Um, getting <laughs> right sleep is actually really important, not uh, like for all kinds of brain functioning, but actually for weight loss. So um, sleep actually impacts your ability to lose weight. So going to bed instead of watching TV, right, is a really fantastic do instead goal. But so the goal ends up being to try to not end up in front of the television rather than being in front of the television and expecting yourself not to start eating. Well, I got rid of the TV. That's a good start there. But now I have the computer screen. Yeah. So, so I'm a, you know, I'm a motivational guy. Josh, Josh is the logic guy between us and I'm the emotional, what do you call that? That guy. Anyway, I'm a big I'm big on affirmations and watching yourself talk and stuff like that. What is your your take on the function of affirmations and self-talk? Yeah. So um, if those are helpful for you and they help keep you motivated, then for sure, keep using them. Um, one of the things that I talk about in the book is that um, our brains are actually hardwired to look for what's wrong. So negative thoughts are actually the default setting of our brain. So the caveman, again, you know, those automatic thoughts that show up is coming from the caveman brain. The caveman who survived was the one who was looking for the threat, 
looking for what was wrong, looking to what needed fixing, looking for the problem. And that's the same experience that our mind does to us now, right, is to look for what's wrong, look for the problem, uh, look for what you can solve. Um, you know, the caveman who was like, wow, I feel so good about myself and I'm just going to sit here and enjoy the sunshine and not worry about anything was not our ancestor. Yeah, he got eaten, right? So the guy who was like nervous and looking for threat and looking for what was wrong, he's our ancestor. So our brains automatically do this negative thinking. Um, and there's no real way to make your brain not do that, right? That's a normal function of how the brain works. And if you're not having automatic negative thoughts, it's probably a sign of organic brain damage because that's <laughs> oh my. how brains work, right? Now, you can decide that once you have a negative thought about how much weight you give that, how much meaning you give it, how long you hang out there. Um, I talk about in the book, thinking about thoughts like footballs, right? So if you get a football, like I'm not good enough. So you can either run down the field with the football, which is like, yeah, I really, I, I suck at this. And I did that thing really badly the other day and nobody's going to like me. That's sort of the running down the field with the football. Or you can picture getting the thought as a football, right? Um, I'm, I'm a sucky person and you can put the football down. Kind of imagine putting that thought and putting the football on the ground which is, again, actually a mindfulness skill um, about not hanging out in that place so long, not giving it so much power over you. But that's actually not about changing the thought. It's not about replacing it with a positive thought. It's not about convincing yourself you are good enough, right? It's actually just about putting the football down. We'll just leave that thought right there and then go do something that is important to you. Um, go do something that is meaningful for you uh, rather than getting stuck in that place. You know, I like that. There's a, so I have a question on you know, related specifically to that. Uh, you said to make a decision about how much weight you give that negative thought. How do you train the habit of not just automatically like, like taking that split second to make a decision is not how we're wired right so right. so that's that is the skill right like, so, right so that yeah. so like how do you introduce that right so i mean that the thing is is that most of the time we run down the field with the football thoughts all the time right so today i had a thought get up get dressed go to work and i ran down the field with the footballs right i did get dressed and i did go to work right so a lot of our thoughts are really functional they're really helpful it's how we get through our day and that's why we're used to acting like our thoughts are real, true things that we have to do, because a lot of them are actually really helpful. Mm -hmm. um, and so it is actually a skill to be able to notice your thoughts and to be able to add that pause, right? So one of the things I talk about in the book is called like the choice point, that you're actually just trying to create a moment of choice. And part of that is slowing down. Part of that is noticing what's happening for you, right? There's a whole series of skills in the book around how do you get better at noticing so that you can give yourself a choice. And most of us, um, for good reason, run down the field with footballs all the time. And so we don't have the skill of being able to put the football down. Um, and that's what we're trying to teach in the book is the skill of actually noticing, hey, I just received a football. And can I put the football down instead of running down the field with it? Right, because when when the football is a, a tiger's chasing me, 
Yeah, um, exactly. Then you you don't want to evaluate. You don't want to take that second to evaluate that thought. You just want to get the heck out. That's of exactly it. right. Right. Imagine how dysfunctional that would be if the thought shows up like there's a tiger run and you're like, hmm, I don't know if I believe that thought. I don't know if I want to. I don't know. Right. Again, not our ancestor. Right. right. The, the thoughts are meant to be sticky and automatic and to force you into behavior right away. Um, and that's how the thoughts function. Right. And again, because of our um, cortex, our frontal lobe, we actually do have the ability to notice the thought, to pause, to give yourself right a, a choice point. And again, because a lot of the thoughts were super helpful when we were cave people, right, but may not be well suited. They may not be giving you good advice for our modern world. And so um, that's a lot of the skill is being able to notice those things. So one of the examples, for example, is you know, sometimes we can feel like we're caught up in our thoughts or even caught up in our emotions. And I talk about it like a hurricane, right? That if you watch hurricane coverage, there'll be the reporter down on the ground being thrown around by the wind, yelling into the microphone, right? Totally caught up in the weather. And then you go to the announcer, you know, in the studio who is like, well, you can see from the northeasterly direction of the wind, he's got the satellite picture behind him or her, right? And it's the same event, right? There's a satellite picture of the hurricane, and there's a reporter stuck in the hurricane. And so what we're trying to do is develop the skill to see it from the satellite perspective, to be able to pull out and to see that this is happening, uh, whether that's like an emotional storm, or whether that's, um, you know, the thoughts that are not helpful, getting stuck in those negative thoughts. And so that skill of being able to see it from the hurricane perspective. In either case, we, we still have a hurricane. So there isn't a goal to get rid of your feelings. There isn't the goal to get rid of your negative thoughts. Those are normal parts of being a human. And so it's the skill of being able to observe it from the satellite perspective, not necessarily get rid of your thoughts or feelings. Um, that is the part that will help you in life do the things that matter to you. And that's a, I mean, that's a whole, that's a whole discipline in itself. It is. Yep. It's a skill. And uh, so we offer, you know, in the book exercises to practice the skill to get better at it. So it's a thing that you can learn to do and that you can learn to do better. And our culture doesn't really ever teach skills like that. It's not a thing that we talk about or even (laughs) teach people to do. Um, most of the messaging we get in culture, in Western culture, is um, that you shouldn't feel bad. If you do feel bad, there's something wrong with you, um, that you should be able to change your feelings. And if you haven't changed your feelings, you're just not trying hard enough. None of that's true. We actually don't have control over our feelings. It's part of our caveman brain. They show up automatically. Mm-hmm. We do not have a very good ability to get rid of feelings in part because they come back because they're part of being a human, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so the skill isn't about getting rid of feelings. It's about um, having that satellite perspective so you can still do the things that matter to you, even if, you know, the emotional weather isn't what you want it to be. Yeah. All right. So your book, now the, the skills we're talking about are not, you know, if, 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 I'm, if I'm looking at the cover of your book, I see the, I think that's asparagus. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't do too many things with green things that look like that. Um, so the focus of that book uh, would appear to be uh, food and, and our relationship with food, but the skills you're talking about here I mean, do you make a conscious effort in the book to 
equate those not to just your habits with food, but to your habits in life in general as you are now? Yeah, so there's lots of different examples in the book. So that includes things like smoking or exercising more or getting more sleep. Um, so, you know, weight being one that people, food and weight being one that people often concentrate on when they're thinking about their health, but not the only one that you can concentrate on. And so um, in the book, I, I offer a bunch of different examples for a variety of different behaviors that, of things you might be trying to do to be healthier. Mm-hmm. These skills in general, though, we actually do know help with um with other parts of your life, right? So the same skills are used in treatments for depression or treatment for anxiety disorders, uh, treatment for procrastination. So those are the exact same skills that have been shown in the literature to help with those problems as well. Okay. And so they do absolutely um, are useful for other parts of your life besides just being healthy. In this book, I focus on the being healthy part, right, of choosing healthy habits. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- those are most of the examples that we give in the book, but uh, it's certainly applicable to all kinds of other aspects of people's lives too. Okay. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm outrunning the food problem for the most part. Um, <laughs> when I, when I don't want to eat that box of ice cream, I'm really good at not buying it. Yeah. Even going on the street where the store is. <laughs> <laughs> And that's actually an easier skill, right? It's easier yes. to avoid the store mm-hmm. than it is to have the ice cream in your fridge and not eat it. So yes. again, that's absolutely right. A, a useful goal is set up your environment in a way that you are less likely to have unhealthy habits. If you have ice cream in the fridge, you're a lot freezer, you're a lot more likely to eat it than if you have to get in the car and drive to the store and purchase it and then come home and eat it, right? That starts to become like, maybe that's too much hassle. Uh, So setting up your environment um, is a very effective way to choose healthier habits. And and at that point also doesn't rely on willpower so much, right? Because your environment is set up to encourage healthy habits. Now, it's also important to note that our environment in general in Western culture does not at all support healthy habits. So the environment we live in is set up for unhealthy habits. Right. So if you drive down the street, you will be bombarded with billboards about food. Right. If you watch TV, you will see commercials about food. Uh, The food industry has spent billions of dollars to make the food taste better so that you want more of it. It is easier and faster and cheaper to find unhealthy food than to find fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. So uh, our our world that we live in in Western culture is not at all conducive to healthy habits. And that's important to keep in mind because um, it, it is a difficult habit to stick to for those reasons, right? One of the reasons why there were changes in smoking behavior is because of public policy. So we don't smoke in restaurants anymore, not because everyone's figured out to use their willpower and not smoke in restaurants, but because there are laws against it and that changed people's behavior. So we won't really see, you know, a major impact on people's health or weight until there are those like big policy level changes that can impact behavior on the population level. Well, the advertising agencies have found out uh, how really simple it is to bypass all logic and uh, discipline with the stuff that they do. And unfortunately, it appears they're using the same neuroscience to program us that we're trying to use to get out of it. So yeah, it's almost that's one of those circle things. Yep. And they're spending billions of dollars to create advertisements that are more likely to get you to choose unhealthy habits, right? 
Well, and with manufacturing production, you know, this is the first time you know, really in human history where you know, uh, the where it's easy to be to be both overweight and and poor. Um, yeah, you know, it used to be you know, because now calorically dense high high calorie food is cheap and vegetables are expensive. Exactly. Yep. So I mean, public policy has subsidized highly processed foods and has not subsidized whole foods like fruits and vegetables. Right. Um, and in part because there's not a lot of profit in whole foods. You don't have to process it. You don't have to engineer it. There's, you know, you don't have to change it. Um, it doesn't require a lot of, you can't patent things about it. Right. And so industry has absolutely, um, you know, fostered highly processed foods that our brains are really happy with. Right. Your brain will light up better to sugar than it will to cocaine. Right, your, the reward sensors in your brain are happier when sugar is there than when cocaine is there, and so um, it's made use of that caveman brain and offered us cheap, you know, foods that are highly processed and unhealthy in the long run. So what I actually have to what I actually have to do now is start walking or running to the store to buy the ice cream, so I can at least. <laughs> Yeah. The irony, though, is that you'd probably have to run for like four hours to work off the calories in like a container of ice cream. Like we totally wow. underestimate um, the, like how much exercise it requires to burn off the calories that we ingest every day. Yeah. Like if you want to have a donut, you probably have to go running for like three hours. No, we don't. We're not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Josh did a half marathon. Sorry, not, <laughs> not not doing that again. Okay, so how much now? You mentioned sleep before. So, and and I, I don't see that you're a, a, a sleep therapist here, but how much? Um, question, because I, I don't get much sleep. Um, three three and a half hours, and I'm done. And 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 less is is okay. If I go under two, I start having functioning problems. But other two and a half. I can go most of the day with that. So figure sleep into the whole equation of um, health, happiness and, and food and stuff for us, please. Yep. So um, one of the one of our big um, research projects that we're taking on is actually about sleep and improving sleep. So um, as a culture, again, we are very sleep deprived. Um, in general, we know that sleep impacts all kinds of things from your cognitive functioning. So like the way you can think. Um, and it also impacts, um, you know, your healthy habits. So when we're tired, there's both, we're less, we have our willpower muscle is more tired also. So it's harder to choose healthy habits. And in addition, our bodies are actually craving like sugary foods to try to increase our energy levels when you're tired. So it's like a double whammy when you're tired. It's both harder to pick the healthy habit and you're seeking things like um, sugar, right, to try to boost your energy levels. Um, and it also impacts uh, weight. So one of my colleagues who specializes in weight management, he tells people to sleep rather than get up early to go to the gym because the sleep actually will impact your weight more than the gym will. So uh, we know in general that sleep impacts our health in a major way um, and that most of us don't get enough sleep. So there's, a, again, a lot of factors working against us to be able to get good sleep. Um, you know, the recommendation is between uh, like seven or eight hours of sleep is what we should be getting. And most of us are not. 
That'll never happen. <laughs> I, I started trying to go to sleep on purpose. So it ended up the habit was pretty much three and a half hours after I close my eyes is when I wake up. So if I go to sleep at midnight, it's just a long day the next day because three thirty comes early. So yeah. that kind of thing. But but I'm I'm trying to get better at it. Yeah, the part that we have control over, I mean, there's a lot of things that influence sleep that we don't have control over. The parts we do have control over is like having a regular schedule. So the more likely, the more you have a regular schedule of getting up and going to bed, the more likely that you're um, going to be tired at the right time, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we have more control over when you wake up than when you go to sleep. So getting up at a regular time, even if you haven't gone to bed at the same time, over time will help you regulate your sleep better because um, we can get up on purpose, but you can't fall asleep on purpose. So there's a lot of actually therapies, like psychological interventions about sleep that have been shown to help people. Um, and so part of our research interest is about adapting those and making them more accessible to the general public. Okay, and you have you have a, a good bit about that in your book, also. We don't uh, focus specifically on sleep, but it does get mentioned. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Um, actually, I want to I want to expand on that a bit. You know, someone like specifically in someone like Kelvin's case, um, where Kelvin's not waking up to an alarm, um, but his body just says that three and a half hours we're done. Um, yeah. Is the recommendation to just stay in bed or do you just get up and go about your day? Yeah. I mean, if you actually are not feeling tired during the day, if it's, you know, not impacting you, I wouldn't try to change your sleep schedule. Right. Um, so if you're functioning and you feel like you're functioning well on three hours of sleep, staying in bed longer is not likely to increase the amount of sleep that you get. Right. There'd probably have to be a lot of lifestyle changes to actually increase your overall sleep, but staying in bed for longer won't help. So it's other things probably like, you know, how much stress levels you have, how much caffeine you drink, um, those kinds of things impact your sleep cycles also. Um, and so it, it would probably require a bigger lifestyle change to, to, to change those sleep patterns. Kevin, we'll send you the baby for two weeks. You would do that for me? <laughs> oh, see the kind of friends I have. Oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah. Well, yeah. probably be nicer to the well never mind. I'm not gonna say well. <laughs> the baby's very good. Marlena's a star, you know. She's a wonderful she's a wonderful child. And she you see that devilish little smile she had over there on the She has uh, a very cute yeah, that's, smile. It's faking so, us out. That's, you know, just so you know, evolutionarily speaking, they're designed to be cute at that age because Yeah, I keep telling my wife that that they make them cute at this age so they that do. you don't, so we don't cook them when you're hungry. You don't throw <laughs> them out the window when they cry. Exactly, because yeah. they're actually quite a lot of work, and uh, there's not that much enjoyableness about them, <laughs> except that they smile and they coo at us and they have those big eyes. And so, yeah, evolution has absolutely made them cute at that yeah. age. Yeah. Something Monsanto didn't uh, didn't control. Did I? Yeah. Say no. Yeah, yeah. It's like you, yeah. We all saw that baby giraffe being born on live stream a couple of years ago. Uh, that kid was walking in three hours. Exactly, right? Human babies yeah, are... Yeah, this one's seven so months dependent. old. She's useless. Right. And she, <laughs> you know, she will be useless for a long time, right? Yeah. I mean, at what age do kids actually become independent? I know people who have college students. 25, yeah. Any day now, any day, right? So there's actually all kinds of systems in our brain. And I actually talk about this in the book. Um, because human babies are so dependent on caregivers, 
um, they really are born too soon, right? So that first three months, you know, especially when they like only sleep and poop, basically, they mm -hmm. really are supposed to still be inside at that point. But there's a trade off because um, the, the point they're born at now is the last point in which our big brain can make it out of the birth canal. So there's a trade off, they're born too soon, but we get these big brains. And over time, the big brain had a bigger advantage. But you have to have a system then to make sure that caregivers will care for these infants because they are incredibly dependent and way more dependent than any other mammal on the planet. And so we have a system, the attachment system, which is right. about the bond between a caregiver and a baby that is designed to make sure that that, that works, that we care for infants. And that extends into adulthood also. And so you know, feeling disconnected from others absolutely is a stressor for humans, right? It says something about human nature that solitary confinement is a form of punishment, right? What do we do to like the really bad people? We put them in solitary confinement and they don't like it, right? That tells you a lot about human nature that that can, that just removing social contact can be a form of punishment. And that's because of that attachment system that if you didn't feel distressed when you were disconnected from a caregiver or when the baby was disconnected from the caregiver, like in both directions, that didn't cause distress, human babies would not survive. Literally the survival of the species is dependent on that, right? And so I talk in the book about, you know, social relationships and how that impacts our healthy habits. You know, the people, we, we talk in our culture that, you know, you should be independent and you should be able to do things on your own and not rely on people. That's actually totally dysfunctional, right? The people that are really problematic are the ones that are disconnected, right? School shooters, how are they described? Loners, they were disconnected. They didn't have friends and or like connections with other people. Not having social connections is a much bigger indicator of something being wrong than people who want to have connections with other humans. And we've made it harder over the, you know, over the past you know, century or two, we're, we're all living in our little boxes, fully independent from anybody else. I, I mean, I've got elderly neighbors, you know, we check on them and sometimes they check on us, but uh, frankly, I, I got everything I need here. I don't even have to go to the grocery store. If I don't want, I can order everything on Amazon Yeah. You know, or uh, I can, you know, if I want something from the grocery store, right I can out. just I can just Instacart. You know, yeah. I, right. So I mean, we are not up. meant to live on our own. We are absolutely, you know, hardwired to live in villages, to live in tribes, and so we we have done a big disservice, especially in um, the Western world where we have, like, especially in um, North America where we have so much space by separating people out into these individual homes, separated by fences, right? And um, and and that is hard for humans to feel disconnected to not feel part of a tribe that's part of how we're hardwired tribes seth godin had a had a thing i um although i i do pretty good by here here by myself but i do go out <laughs> so and I visit Josh once a year because, well. But, but even look at the, thing. Yeah. The, the thing you're doing right now, right? Mm -hmm. This is actually about connecting with people. So your podcast yeah. is meant to, to connect with other people. If you were just doing it by yourself and not sending it out to other people, right? I mean, that's not your goal. Your goal is actually to share this with other humans. So again, that speaks to like our innate desire to connect with other humans. We do it now through technology, right? Um, in different ways for better or for worse, right? Um, but again, part of what we're doing right here right now is actually social connection. Oh, well, there is that. So it sounds like you call, cover an awful lot of territory in your book. 
because I haven't said anything yet, but you didn't go, yeah, we talk about that in the book. And that's <laughs> amazing because we can go off on some pretty interesting tangents. So how big is this book? <laughs> yeah. yeah, the good news is that it's actually a pretty easy read. It's not that long. Um, so I do test. I mean, I think the reason why I'm able to comment on all the things that you're talking about is that the book is designed to talk about the things that matter to people, right? We specifically, you know, I specifically address things that commonly come up for people. Um, and so the things that you guys are bringing up are exactly the same things that come up for patients when I'm working with them. And so it's deliberate to focus on the stuff that really matters, um, which is why I think we've touched on a number of the topics in the book, but it's actually a pretty easy read. You know, um, it's meant that you can work on it like once a week and practice the skills in between, but you can actually probably read the whole thing, you know, in an afternoon or something too. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's meant to be accessible. It's meant to, it's not meant, you know, it's, it's very highly based on science, but it's meant to be digestible in a way for people who aren't exposed to science or don't know, all of those pieces to it. And so there's a really strong goal for me about making scientific information accessible to people, like to anybody, right? And so there's a real effort there to make those into digestible pieces that people can really take and make use of and practice right away and apply to their lives right away. Awesome. Great. So I know that um, we've got to wrap up so that you can get to your your next appointment. Um, just a couple of quick kind of wrap up questions. Uh, you will have, we'll have links to the book and your website in the show notes and everything, but uh, there anywhere that you prefer people connect with you or do you hang out on social anywhere? Like what's yep. the, so the I'm on social media. People can find me on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. I do have a website also. Um, on Twitter, I often, um, you know, send out messages about healthy habits and um, about like little tips, both for healthcare providers working with patients, but also for the public. Um, my Twitter handle is at Dr. Lee Bagley, which is D-R-L-E-E-B-A-G-G-L-E-Y. Uh, and it's the same one for Facebook. I also post information there. Um, I posted something today about um, self-compassion and the importance of self-compassion and weight management. Uh, so there, those are all ways that you can uh, stay connected about the information over time. Great. And um, everybody's least favorite question. Is there anything that you were hoping to get across that we didn't get to today? No, I think we touched on a lot of really important things. Um, and uh, yeah, I think we, you know, hit on the things that, that are useful about the book and uh, the things that matter to people. So I think it, it went really well. <laughs> Thank you. Awesome. Do, do recommend us to all your friends. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, thanks so much for being here. And we will um, get you a link when the show goes up. I think we'll probably get this one up for Monday. Great. Well, it was lovely talking with you guys. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Thank you. you, you have, have a great day. day. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks for listening. Show notes and more at jkwdpodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and share with your friends, and we will see you next week.
Better Humanhood production.